Welcome to Girl Empowered, a podcast with Ophelia's Plays designed to inspire, educate, and empower you and the girls in your life. I'm your host, River Allen. I'm so excited today to have our special guest for our discussion about autism spectrum disorder and particularly how that manifests or is experienced by girls and women. So that's our topic for today. And I'm just going to go ahead and let my wonderful, charming, brilliant, attractive, although my listeners can't see that, I'll just, you know, confirm for you guest. Go for it. Thank you so, so much, River. Hello, wonderful audience members. My name is Samantha Cohen, but please just know me as Sammy. That's the name I go by. Um, I use she, her pronouns, and I was an intern at Ophelia's Place between 2014 through 2016. And part of why I'm here today and chatting with River about ASD and girls is because my senior project was to do a staff training on the needs and just general awareness of how autism affects girls and people socialized as girls. So um, a little bit more about my background. I have an extensive background in disability services, youth services, and training and development. So all of this kind of intersected together into my current career working in training and development in New York City. So that is a brief intro about me. All right, big city girl. <laughs> I love that you're you're coming to talk to us through the virtual ether um, back here in Eugene. I really um, cannot. I, I just want to convey to our listeners that training that you developed is still being used. It's in fact um, uh, continued to be added to and is now being offered to the public in the sense of more adults and folks who work with youth and families who might be encountering the diagnosis of autism. And so um, I just love that your, what was a senior project has had this legacy and these, these legs to continue to be a gift to our community and to anyone who is a part of it, or even who will listen today. So thank you for that. It's my joy. Wow. I mean, the gravity of that is hitting me. So I'm processing that as you're sharing that. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, um, it's often easy for projects like that sometimes to feel a little bit like, you know, jumping through the hoop to graduate or something like that. And I have felt really great. Yeah, really grateful that um, Ophelia's Place has had a real commitment to wanting, uh, you know, for for folks who know about kind of like the own voices concept or nothing about us without us, you know, the idea that when we're going to talk about someone's experience that isn't our own, How can we make sure that we really center the people who are experiencing it, whether that's neurodivergence, whether that's race and ethnicity, you know, whatever. And so I've been really pleased at how many of our wonderful interns have actually given us meaningful material that helps us do the work we do better. So I'm glad that that you can feel a little taste of that. Thank you so much. So I was hoping that we could start off um, at to whatever degree you'd like, but telling us a little bit about kind of your journey, your growing up, um, you know, as a girl with ASD, um, as an autistic woman, um, really with the thought of, you know, people respond to stories. We like to kind of um, hear something where we can go, oh, I, I'm, I'm really, that resonates with me. And I'm going to think about how that would show up in the people in my life. So whatever you feel comfortable sharing about kind of what that's been like. 
Absolutely. And just to give our listeners a quick heads up, you will notice that I use um, mostly identity first language to talk about my experiences. And occasionally I'll slip into person first, just Mm. to differentiate between those two really quick. Um, In the autistic community, especially amongst autistic adults, identity first is preferred because, again, so much of our lived experience is inexpensive not inextricably linked, that's a different term phrase, but intrinsically linked to how we experience the world, how we've been pathologized in medicine just because we show up in the world differently. So there is a strong sentiment, especially within autistic adults, to use identity first language. Now, I do use person-centered language or person-first language on occasion, especially when I'm talking with folks outside of the autistic community or with folks that are pretty new to the idea of thinking about disability and neurodivergence in these ways, because there's such a long history of people with disabilities and people who experience challenges with mental health and people that have just been really, again, pathologized for being different, um, have been dehumanized throughout history. So when the disability justice movement really took off, person-first language was heavily emphasized to really affirm people's humanity. The autistic communities had some friction with person-first language, especially because it's often been used by parents of autistic people who are not autistic. Um, That removes some of the agency So a lot of autistic adults use identity first language. I appreciate you mentioning that actually that fits into the larger narrative around disability. And I just think for our listeners to understand if you've been using person first, because at the time that you heard it, that was considered the more respectful, more honoring way. Like, don't feel bad if you've used that. But this is an opportunity to have a bigger discussion about one Um, what community you're in when you're using language um, and asking people their preference, because even within, I'm sure within the autistic community, there are people who might have certain variations in what their preferences are, but just to recognize that that kind of identifying language changes over time and it's okay if you're not as up to date, but just let's listen. Right. And I like that you said, let's listen, because again, people usually tell us how they want to be referred to as in pretty simple, plain terms. Um, Absolutely. So now I get to talk about myself. (laughs) I love it. So my experience with autism in some ways is pretty unique. Um, For a lot of people who are assigned female at birth and socialized as girls, oftentimes they don't receive a diagnosis. And this is because of gender bias in diagnosis, a lot of misconceptions about autism being, and I cringe at saying this, but this is the terms that have been used, uh, male brain condition, which is not accurate nor helpful when thinking and talking about this. And also, again, because some of the ways that autism presents in girls is a little more socially acceptable in some ways, because, again, it often can present as being shy or quiet or withdrawn, which, again, that's a little more socially accepted for, you know, patriarchal reasons. Absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) So I was diagnosed when I was three years old. 
Um, rare, I wasn't, right? Yeah, it's pretty rare at the time because this at would have time. been, um, and also listeners, guess my age. This would have <laughs> been um, around maybe 1997. So things were starting to change in terms of recognizing that, hey, we should screen universally. Hey, if a child isn't listening, it's not just because they're being difficult. Um, it was actually my daycare provider that pulled my parents aside and said, hey, I don't think she has a hearing problem. You might want to get her screen for autism. And that is when I got diagnosed and I received services pretty much from there on. Um, When I was very young, you know, I just didn't play like other kids. I would have my own like inner monologue where I would talk to myself about my fantasy worlds and all the characters in them. As a kid, I strongly preferred a thing called parallel play, which means I would do my own thing and expect the person playing with me to also do their own thing. But we wouldn't be playing together, but we'd be playing in the same space. So especially if... I love that example. I I think that's so helpful because it speaks to the assumptions we make about how kids play and what's normal and that there's nothing wrong with parallel play. And in fact, I think a lot of adults discover that they might like that kind of thing too. Thank you for sharing that. You are so welcome. I mean, even as an adult, I will FaceTime my best friend as I am meal prepping because it's just nice. We don't even have to talk, but it's just like, cool, another person while I do a task. Yeah. (laughs) So when I was very, very young, I, you know, I was quirky, but by and large, I was pretty accepted by my peers up until around fourth and fifth grade. That's kind of when it changed. Um, What really changed was I essentially gave a mini presentation at the encouragement of, you know, adults in my life to talk about what being autistic was like. Really? Yeah. At that age, being asked to do that. Interesting. Yeah. I realize I don't think I've ever spoken publicly about that. It wasn't a bad thing. It was a very well-intentioned thing to bring sensitivity, bring awareness. Yeah. And what resulted was, in addition to middle school being terrible, because keep in mind, this was late elementary school. The way that people started talking about autism was kind of gross to me then. Yeah. Middle school, so sixth grade. And for context, this would have been around 2006. So just also imagine the cultural zeitgeist of 2006, certain words being way more acceptable in media than they are today. I'm thinking in particular the R word, which I am not going to repeat. That was very accepted vernacular when I was a kid. Um, So then sixth grade happened and I don't know any adult that can confidently look back and say, yeah, middle school, best time of my life, peaked at age 13. You couldn't pay me enough. (laughs) Actually, no, same. I'm like, you know, student loan debt forgiveness, that's tempting, but no. (laughs) (laughs) But I, there were a lot of changing norms that I didn't get. And that was in conjunction with the fact that my body had already radically changed. I started puberty when I was nine. So that was really confusing going through that. And my parents gave me the talk, but they didn't give me the period talk. Um, So that happened when I was nine. So I'd already been in the throes of puberty. My body had changed. In many ways, I was mentally still very young, but I was like, I'm also almost a teenager. This is exciting. But with that, I completely miss the social norms around, ooh, what happens when you like someone? Ooh, what happens when a girl doesn't want to be your friend anymore? 
Um, what happens when you come home crying from school every single day because nobody believes what you're going through? Uh, um, yeah, I just, wow, the tonal shift in that was serious. Um, so middle school is rough. I received a lot of bullying around just being weird, different. Um, the R word was thrown at me a lot. Um, I didn't identify with being autistic and using identity first language until I was an adult because people would call me an autistic crybaby. Like even just saying that, it's like, Ooh. oh, I want to, yeah, I want to hug 13 year old me. And Do it. Just hug her. <laughs> it's okay, 13 year old me. Um, and then by the time eighth grade ended, I had the opportunity to switch schools and for context through kindergarten through eighth grade, I was on an individualized education plan or an IEP and the IEP in theory gave me accommodations such as taking time out of class, taking breaks, um, being able to go to the counselor's office anytime I wanted or needed. The IEP by the time I was in middle school was something that I was aware was being held over my head. Um, especially by teachers that just didn't get it. I mean, I had a social studies teacher in sixth and seventh grade when I'd come into his class bawling because, of course, middle school. He would just be like, do you need to take a break? Go take a break. I will never forget that. Just Ugh. I'll never forget that. So I knew that, that like, feeling okay. of being like singled out or othered in that way and, and kind dismissed. of dismissed and dismissed. Yeah. Yeah. The dismissal was woof. I knew by that point, I'm like, look, if I am out as different in any way, shape or form, I am going to have a hard time. So when it came time to switch schools and I left the school district I was a part of, I lied about having autism. I lied about having an IEP and the district never followed up because in many ways I passed as neurotypical. And (laughs) I will say after 2020, using this language as a different ring to it, but I masked as a normal neurotypical kid. Granted, my social skills were still a little off, but not to the point of needing intervention or needing support other than what was given to me. Will you explain to listeners um, that term masking, particularly how it's used within the autistic community? Absolutely. So again, post-2020 has a different context, but um, in the autistic community, and even today within the autistic community, masking essentially refers to the act of acting like a neurotypical person does in American dominant culture. So making eye contact, modulating your voice so people hear you, nodding, smiling, being friendly, pretending to be interested in small talk, Things like that, which I try to explain masking like this. Um, Imagine that you have a new partner, you've been seeing each other, and y'all are really happy, things are going well, and you're going to meet the partner's parents. Now, you've been made aware that your partner's parents are pretty conservative. They don't like swearing in the house. They don't like visible piercings or tattoos. They like someone who presents clean, meaning if your hair is textured any other way, They may look down upon that. So imagine how you would have to radically change not just your appearance, but your mannerisms and your behavior just so that you are on good terms with your partner's family, just so you make a good impression and just so you have a chance. Now, imagine doing that pretty much 24-7 and not just for meeting your partner's family, but for things like employment, 
navigating peer groups, getting into hobbies, trying to form connection and community. Times maybe even things like ordering a coffee, you know, things we take for granted. Oh, ordering. Yeah. Especially I like I can handle a phone call, but I still hate phone calls to this day. Um, Yeah. (laughs) That's masking. And it takes a lot of cognitive energy. Yes. Yeah. Like autistic burnout is real. Sorry. Yeah, it is. No, I I didn't mean to cut you off. I I just appreciate that you said it in that way, because I think that it might be easier for, uh, might be easy for a listener to say, I mean, everybody has to do some of that, you know, and none of us like small talk, you know, maybe, and yes. And um, certainly we all learn different codes of behavior for certain situations. Mm -hmm. That is true. Mm -hmm. And we don't necessarily love always having to do that. But what you're talking about is literally, as you said, sort of a 24-7 kind of hyper-awareness and attunement and mental emotional energy that has to be going forward. That is all about kind of interpreting and dealing with other people um, just so that they can kind of treat you normally, right? Like this isn't, it's not... And, it, and it's something that is exhausting, I think, in a, at a certain level that neurotypical people, we might make fine-tuned adjustments or some of us might be introverts or extroverts, but we're not having to literally put on sort of a set of behaviors and orientations all the time just so that people will treat us like human beings. Actually, yeah, that you, you really articulated it. I mean, it's it's one thing just to navigate a conversation with a coworker that you clearly wanted to end 20 minutes ago. <laughs> it's another when you are interviewing so you can have independence. Yeah. So I got real good at masking. Um, and I didn't tell anyone in high school up until a, maybe a handful of close friends by senior year. Um a couple people at that point knew, but it was a secret because I didn't want to be treated differently. Right. I didn't want to be bullied. And, you know, I had a lot of internalized ableism I was struggling with. Because again, how, how, how do you think that affected your mental health? Having to. Oh, terribly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, and it gave me like a weird complex um, for lack of a better term. I mean, I will admit that because I was so insecure about my own autism that. I internalized some really nasty beliefs about disability, about presenting disability. I, you know, I internalized and felt really conflicted because I wanted this normal life. And also like normal is a construct, but we'll get to that later. Um, You mean, you know, the sense of belonging, that is a human need, regardless of, you know, whether you're neurotypical or neurodivergent, we all have a human need to belong. And we have a lot of prejudice and judgment to overcome in our society around all kinds of things, but certainly around disability and um, neurodivergence. Absolutely. So yeah, that makes sense to me. Thank you for naming that. Um, And I'll say too, it's one of those experiences where I think as an adult, as I'm better able to like articulate my life, articulate my experiences, people hear me now in ways that they would not have heard me as a teenager and as a kid. And, you know, I think that really, it is. And I think it really speaks to the fact that as adults, we kind of have to do our part in setting aside our internal eye roll that comes up when (laughs) children share with us some of the frustrating and very real things that are in their world. Um, What you're naming there, I think is so brilliant. That's that intersection of what we call adultism 
And listeners, if you haven't, go listen and I talk about adultism in another episode. Um, But it's that intersection between adultism and disability. And, you know, you Mm -hmm. talked about that so brilliantly in the training you developed. You said you're looking at when we're talking about girls with autism, we're talking about that intersection of like gender bias or sexism, um, disability, you know, and how that those prejudices are still very real through ableism. Um, We're also talking about adultism and the prejudice and ways that we don't see young people as being fully people. And then with whatever other pieces of identity someone might carry. And I, I love that you just named that also. Thank you. And it's very true. And it's, you know, it is my hope and part of my hope as I continue my career in training and development that we create resources for adults to confront this. Because I will say by the time I was an adult, I felt a lot more secure and confident in my identity, in how I showed up in the world, in my support needs too, because I even at almost 29, I still have some support needs. Like I do need people to remind me to do certain tasks that neurotypical people may dread doing, but executive function wise, I need support and I need it written out. If it's told to me verbally, I honest to God won't remember it. That's a brilliant example. Thanks for sharing that. I mean, one for saying like, you know, this is a part of who you are that will be part of you for your whole life. And it's a part of you that, you know, also isn't all bad. This is part of who makes you you. And you may still need some support or accommodations in certain areas that you're now more able to advocate for yourself confidently. Um, But yeah, just recognizing also that like, there shouldn't be ever shame around that because we all do in different ways, whether we recognize, you know, our privilege in feeling comfortable asking for it or not. Yeah. So I, I thank you for that. I am going to take a quick sip of water, listeners, so don't mind me. <laughs> See, self-care, hydrate. <laughs> Absolutely. I am part of the hashtag hydro homies community. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so, so you kind of got walked us up through, you know, kind of masking in high school, starting to talk to a few close friends um, mm-hmm. about being autistic. Um, and that by the time entering college, there were, you know, there was some of that, but there was also still carrying some of this maybe internalized ableism or shame or kind of negotiating. How do I, I still want what we call a normal life, but I also don't want to maybe suppress who I am. So that kind of started, you were carrying that as you started college. Yeah. I did. And I would say at some point between my first year was kind of my breaking point of like, look, you can mask all you want, but you're always going to be a little atypical. You're always going to be a little divergent. So why not name it? Why not just acknowledge it? And for the people that have an issue with it or the resources that will deny you things because of it, that is more on them. Now, that's not to say that it was always easy. I mean, especially as a young adult, you know, you have to figure out at what point do I disclose to this person that I'm dating that I'm autistic and how do I not make it weird or how do they not make it weird? Yeah. Um, um, But there was something that just clicked in me where it's like, okay, I know my experiences. I know how the adults who did me right showed up. I know how the adults who dropped the ball did not show up or showed up in ways that weren't helpful. I knew at that point where I wanted to take my career in education So I was like, okay, what can I do to make sure that no autistic girl or someone that was socialized in the world as a girl has to go through what I went through? You know, and I think about, so then I met you at the start of your junior year. 
mm-hmm. um, when you became an intern with Ophelia's Place. And I mean, from the first day of training, pretty much every staff member was like in love with Sammy. We were all like, she's magic. But I, because <laughs> that's just who you are in your full self. You are magic. But um, one of the things I recall is is uh, you coming up to me and sharing very early days. I think it might have been at training. Correct me. Might have been wrong, in the interview too, actually. It might have been. Uh, yeah. But early on, you had just shared. Uh, I think very confidently to me, you know, that this was uh, part of who you are. Um, And it's funny because I was so impressed with just the whole package that's you, but I was so impressed with the courage it takes to go into a completely unfamiliar environment. You don't know anyone. You don't know if you can trust us and share this kind of intimate piece that from your own experience had sometimes resulted in some being treated very poorly. Right. Um, and, And I was so just like, wow, this person has a lot of confidence. This person's really brave. Um, and we had a running joke for listeners didn't hear us saying before we started recording, but we had a running joke about apologizing a lot. <laughs> and I remember you and I, you'd come in and I'd be like, Sammy, stop apologizing. <laughs> and I'm like, ah, <laughs> oh, wait, wait, wait. I, I remember this too. Because you told me, you gave me this tip. You said, River, hey, if I have a social behavior that's maybe not at the professional level, or there's something you'd really like me to do in terms of how I interact with the girls, will you please just tell me directly? I won't be offended, but it'll really help me. And so that became this thing that I could do, for example, the apologizing. And and we could laugh because I think that I understood directly and clearly from you that this was an ask and that it wasn't hurting your feelings or making you feel lesser if I did what you asked me to do. Exactly. Yeah. And that was huge in our working relationship. Um, And as a side note for listeners, um, I'm only chuckling simply because in opportunities since OP, I will admit I've been very cautious about disclosing um, because I learned soon after I do have to be very careful. Um, Even in the job application process, I have experienced that even if it's supposed to be anonymous, if I indicate I have a disability, I will never hear from that job. Absolutely. Um, so that's very I've real. Very careful since then, but I was very fortunate in that just intuitively on some level, I knew, okay, it would be helpful for everyone if they knew and if they knew some of my support needs. And that's a big thing too. We have to trust what girls tell us in terms of what their needs are. Yes. Because again, people often tell us what they need. It's just a matter of, are we really listening or are we just listening to respond? Are we listening to fix? We have to seek to understand. I love that. And I think that's so key. We want to be flexible, adaptive, um, particularly as adults who are working with young people. I'm hoping our listeners take this piece. <laughs> if you are working with a young person or if you're working with anyone not only do we all have unique experiences, but groups of people share certain kinds of experiences based on how they're treated in society. Um, it The burden is upon us to be attuned, to be listening, and then to adjust our behavior, not to impose on young people that they all just have to make us comfortable, right? They just need to do what I say. That um, in fact, there's a lot of information to be gleaned from the young people if we're, if we're willing to listen and then that relationship becomes much richer and much more, I think, um, productive in terms of supporting that young person in the way they need. It really does. And River, I appreciate you naming um, just encouraging 
adults to really be critical of whether or not when they're coaching a young person on their behavior, is it because they're behaving in a way that genuinely is unacceptable? For example, are they being mean? Are they being hurtful? Are they being rude? Are they demonstrating a lack of consideration to an extent that would impact them later on in life? Or are they just behaving in a way that you don't understand? Um, because again, like, especially with autistic girls and in my experience too, even to this day as an adult, I have a hard time processing and naming anger because I was taught that certain anger outbursts or angry behaviors are not okay. And then it was very confusing to me as an adult to see people express anger in some of those same ways and not even in a gendered way. But in the, this is one of the ways that ableism shows up, because again, if you have a meltdown as an autistic person, that's treated very differently than when a neurotypical person loses, loses their, their temper. popcorn. Yeah, yeah loses <laughs> their temper. I'm like, trying to figure out the podcast appropriately. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, but I think you're absolutely right. And, and I would say it, what I heard in there that also kind of popped out to me is, um, because you have shared this and in our training, we talk about this. Um, you, if you're giving an autistic person feedback, um, or some coaching about like, oh, Hey, here's how we show respect concretely in this instance, that autistic person might understand it in that specific context, but not necessarily apply that to what we as neuro, I'm speaking of myself, what I, as a neurotypical person would assume applies across the board in all these other situations, that autistic person might be like, well, no, in this particular situation, I get what you're saying, but that other situation has nothing to do with it. And I'm as a neurotypical person saying, well, yes, it does. And so recognizing that's again, that my, my bias and my experience and, and all of that. And so for you being like, okay, well, this kind of outburst isn't acceptable. And then maybe that gets internalized as no kind of anger is acceptable. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny, too, because you named another dynamic that I think is really important when thinking about the experience of autistic girls. Are you morphing their behavior to be more convenient for you as an adult? I mean, within the autistic community, there's a lot of very valid and I think important critiques of some of the social therapies that are taught, especially to very young children. Um, And I won't go into all of the politics of that. But I think it's helpful to name that there's a lot of critique from autistic adults because some of those therapies are punishing autistic children for stimulating because it's weird and not socially acceptable. Not because it's harmful, not because it's doing any harm to to anyone. (laughs) Exactly. It's not harmful. It's not. And in most instances, it's not necessarily inappropriate. Right. Um, Now, granted, if a stim is inappropriate, like, for example, if a young person stims by you know, touching themselves, that is a valid instance of correcting and trying to find a substitute behavior. So that way they can still have the stimulatory needs met, but in a way that's, again, socially appropriate. But not uh, that it's every type of STEM or every, I really appreciate you saying that because I do think like some of this is uh, so much comes back to, uh, I'm not comfortable in this situation or I don't understand the situation. So I'm just going to tell this young person to behave in the way that makes me feel more comfortable. And that doesn't benefit anybody. 
Actually. It really doesn't, no. And like as an adult, I've learned that a lot of the social skills I learned were really just to make the adults around. And this, and keep in mind, listeners, this is not me ragging on the many wonderful safe adults who advocated for me, taught me very important social skills. Like, hey, if you like someone, following around the hallways is not appropriate. Here are appropriate <laughs> ways to indicate romantic interest in someone. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you have those people and you had folks maybe who weren't as supportive or helpful. Exactly. So I do really want to name and acknowledge that I've had so many adults who did get it. And if I may, I want to talk a little bit about what those adults did right. I think that would be wonderful. I think our listeners would love to hear what what can we do right? What is helpful? What makes a difference for girls who are navigating this particular part of their their being? Well, the first being, again, and similar to the feedback that you've given me in our time as, you know, supervisee and intern, um, and also just looking back on things that my parents have done, teachers, I've really been lucky to have a lot of really rad, awesome, safe adults. But again, that very direct communication, but also be direct if you're noticing that they're doing something right. Don't necessarily make it an infantilizing spectacle, but just be like, hey, that situation was weird and you handled it really well. Love it. Hearing that from adults in my life really helped because I, you know, I struggle with doubting myself sometimes around like, did I handle that right? Having someone say, no, you really did well. Here's how you handled that well. Mm-hmm. Um, because again, it's not just, oh, let's fix and correct. Let's also uplift because again, people make it adaptations to exist in the world. Um, other things that adults did, right. Um, treating my autism normally, um, just as like, you know, like, oh yeah, that's just a part of who she is. If people asked, um, and again, people in my life have been really good about saying, you know, yeah, like that's Sammy, that's her needs. Yeah. And leaving it at that, just treating it as normal as, yeah, that's Sammy and she likes her oat milk lattes. Yeah, that's just part of who she is. Um, and additionally, too, as I've gotten older, having friends not stigmatize it and also having neurodivergent friends and community has helped. When I was younger, I think I felt really resentful of being pigeonholed into you must, you either hang out in the neurotypical world or you only hang out with other autistic kids. And I felt- I hear that. I hear that from our young people a lot, particularly the ones who are neurodivergent, this resentment that there there's this assumption that here's you as a neurodivergent person, here's a bunch of others, you'll automatically be friends and have the same experience. Well, and just being forced into those social circles from adults that were uncomfortable with, well, what happens if we let a neurodivergent people person try to experience this? What happens if we let them fumble, make mistakes, learn? Um, And something that, again, I will actually give my parents credit on. They were really great about letting me learn and fumble without a lot of judgment. Um, So that was something that was really important to me. And circling back on that, I really had to overcome that internalized sense of I feel resentful about only hanging out with X, Y, and Z, because I ended up neglecting some really awesome friendships with fellow neurodivergent people that as an adult, I've been really mindful about cultivating and seeking to understand and enjoying those because it's like, hi, my brain is mush today. Here is how I can show up for you. Here is a meme. And that is a valid and accepted form of communication in many of my friendships to this day because they get it. And, you know, same with, you know, dating as I got older and finding those relationships as well. Because again, if someone was weird about it or leveraged it, 
yeah, no, that's not going to happen. That's no, nope. not for you. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, not for I anyone don't need to be Exactly. I'm like, I'm y'all, I'm like an adult. I do not need to be parented. I will parent myself. Nor do you need to be condescended to, you know, or treated as if you're difficult or high maintenance just because you're who you are. And I think those are all kind of stereotypes and assumptions that can come up in, in adult relationships too. Um, oh, absolutely. No matter the kind. Um, so again, when thinking about working with girls, that directness, that affirmation that they're doing things right, and also don't doubt them when they express the pains of navigating the world. Don't say things like, well, kids are going to pick on you no matter where you go to school. Yeah, no, I experienced a lot less bullying at my high school for a reason. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and not just because I hid that. Like there was objectively, it was culture. a much, much very different culture. Well, so, and I think also that um, when a young person, what you're saying too is, uh, if they come and share that experience, and especially if they, I mean, it takes a lot of courage, but if they're even able to articulate that this is also part of my experience because I have autism, then as adults, not to do that thing of like, oh, no, no, I'm sure they didn't mean it that way, or, oh, they just didn't understand, or, you know, in kind of invalidating, no, this happens, this hurt me, there's education that needs to be done to neurotypical people and kids so that we create a more welcoming environment for literally everyone, Yes, universal design. We want everyone to be welcome, everyone to be included, and everyone to have access. Yes. And again, it's so important, too, that we trust what people say because, you know, and there are things I can look back and be like, oh, yeah, as an, eh, that wasn't as impactful nowadays. But when I was younger, those experiences of being excluded, mm. all the school dances I'd come home crying from because I just didn't understand why it was like this. Yeah. You know, maybe we can't fix every scenario. We can't be there to quote protect, and that's not necessarily always our role, our young people, including those with neurodivergence. But at the very least, when they come to us sharing the experience of that, to believe it, to validate that it wasn't their fault, right? You are your own unique person, and that includes your neurodivergence, but no one has the right to treat you disrespectfully or to make fun of you or use slurs. Um, I, I care for you and see you as you are. You know, those are, that sounds to me some of what you're saying that was helpful from adults who were caring. Absolutely. Like I look back and, you know, both of my parents did a really good job in advocating for me in different ways and showing up in different ways. My dad was definitely the advocate of like, I will talk to administrators because you need to transfer. Um, my mom was the, hey, the other kids and frankly, some of the adults are on their nonsense. Um, and I do also want to take a moment to acknowledge, I talked a bit about support needs. I'm going to acknowledge that not every autistic girl is has the ability to be articulate like me. Not every autistic girl uses words to communicate what's going on for her, right? Yeah. So yeah. I want to acknowledge that because that is something that comes up a lot when I talk about autism. I think what about that's... people? Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. Oh, no worries. No worries. I was about to say, like, what about autistic people with higher support needs? I don't yeah. use the word functioning because... We all exist. We all function. We just have different needs. Um, and, and you pointed out in the training that you that you uh, shared with us, um, it, one of the things I really appreciated was when you said uh, 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 spectrum, we call autism spectrum disorder. And for a long time, there's been this kind of 
Ah, yes, it's a spectrum, a linear spectrum from uh, less, quote, functioning to more functioning. But again, is it's pretty ableist. It's also not nuanced at all. And then you said and shared an image where you said, think of a spectrum like the prism from a crystal, a rainbow, right? So that image is in a circle. And that on all these different axes of someone's um, ability or um, cognition or physicality or whatever, like that a, a person with autism will have different strengths and different challenges all throughout that. And, and it isn't a linear progression from less capable to more capable. And so the, thinking about what resources each individual has within themselves and then what needs they have um, as, as a, in a more nuanced way, that was one of the most profoundly helpful things you shared with me. And thank you. I'm I'm really so glad to hear that it was because again, like thinking about it so linearly, and I don't fault people for thinking about it because again, what autistic representation have we seen? Not it much. has not been nuanced. <laughs> it has not been encompassing. It's yeah. most of it has been eh. Um, <laughs> but something I would encourage adults who are supporting gals who have higher needs, figure, and you know their ways of communication listen to them, listen to what they're communicating. And additionally, I can understand the temptation to make things developmentally appropriate. And I'm putting that in quotes because I really don't love hearing people say, oh yeah, she's 13, but mentally she's, and emotionally she's closer to 10. I wish they didn't use that at all. No, it's just not a helpful way. It's degrading. Um, I'll also say it's not accurate. (laughs) It's not accurate. It's not. Some people need information delivered more simply. Some people may be more naive to certain social situations. Still something I struggle with to this day. Um, And some people may need more guidance and coaching on who to trust and who not to trust, knowing that that is difficult, knowing that that takes nuance. Um, So again, when you are working with someone who has higher support needs, communicate that, identify with them and talk to them about things that they're going to experience. For example, if you're supporting a girl who maybe has more needs than other autistic girls and you notice that there's a blood spot on her pants, talk to her and not just talk, but Take out a pair of underwear, show her a pad if that's her preferred method, because again, that might open up another conversation. Talk about periods. Don't just not acknowledge a fundamental piece of life. And I think Um, that touches exactly on what you said about that's our adult discomfort. That's our adult worry about how to handle these topics. And then now we're projecting that also onto a young person who has maybe some additional concerns or sensory issues or confusion that, and and we're not helping anybody there. So I love that, like practical, concrete, demonstrate, explain, show, and manage your own self so that you're comfortable with it, whether you, you know, for any adult, whether they're autistic or neurotypical, but I think that's so key, Sammy. Thank you. It's my joy. And remember your autistic girls are going to grow up to be autistic women. They're going to grow up to have adult experiences, whether or not you are caring for them, whether or not they live independently, whether they live with supportive roommates, like they're going to have adult experiences no matter their support needs. So give them that human dignity of preparing them for adulthood, just as you would any neurotypical kid. I love that, Sammy. That is Mm, boom. (laughs) <laughs> um, I, I want to ask you just a, a final little wrap up 
yeah. takeaway question maybe for listeners. Um, what do you celebrate about being an autistic woman? Gosh, so much actually. Um, I feel like because I've had to learn certain life skills and social skills in a really academic way, I feel that it's given me an advantage in seeking to understand people because it's given me the perspective of treating people and not necessarily in an infantilizing way, but really assuming that people are trying their best at understanding the world because I'm trying my best at understanding the world. So, so it's maybe me, your, your empathy and compassion have been heightened through that experience. It has. And also quick debunking of stereotypes. Autistic people can be hyper empathetic. They may not always express it, but we feel things. I feel things a lot. A lot of autistic people feel things a lot. They just might not show it. Um, so that empathy and like that hyper compassion, like I will feel sad if I see a potted plant on the ground. Like it makes, I don't like it. Um, um, but I think also too, it's given me the ability to understand why people react the way they do. People get overstimulated. I can see when someone's getting overstimulated and say, yeah, it's kind of loud in here or yeah, it's kind of bright or for my listeners in New York City, oh yeah, the summer stink is coming through. Um, <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. It's, yeah. And I think that, you know, there has been some discussion about even things like um, special interests, right? You know, sometimes called fixations. Um, I've had those. But, yeah. Yeah. That that often it can, can if, if people who are neurotypical are conscious of it, like, how amazing to have these people in our communities who have this depth of knowledge and passion and attention to this very, all these diverse topics that we maybe take for granted or don't have a lot of depth for. I mean, I, I only say that as a, a neurotypical person kind of admiring that um, when I see it amongst my autistic, you know, colleagues or friends or girls. So um, yeah, just to put that out there, that there are, there are unique gifts also that come um, with being who you fully are. Um, not only the challenges, there's also the gifts and, and you're a whole person and, yes. as is every other person. And I, I so appreciate that you've shared even a piece of that on this um, podcast episode. You're just a delightful human, Sammy. Thank you so much for being with us. It is my joy, River. Thank you so much for having me. And I am just happy to be here. Great. Well, um, for our listeners, uh, take heart to some of what was shared here. I think there's a lot of great takeaways, a lot of great information. Um, and also, uh, this training continues to live with Ophelia's Place and is something we can offer out to our community if you contact us. So take care, everyone. Thank you for joining me, River, and Ophelia's Place right here on Girl Empowered. I'll talk to you next time and remember empowered girls change the world.